to Living Through the Word, the podcast ministry of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, a diocese of the Anglican Church in North America. I'm Julian Dobbs, the diocesan bishop, and today on this episode, it's my great privilege uh, to welcome a hero of the faith, uh, a leader in the Anglican Communion, uh, a follower of Jesus Christ, most importantly, a man who I'm incredibly privileged to call my friend, Archbishop Peter Jensen from Sydney, Australia. Archbishop, great to have you on the program, sir. Thank you very much, Gillian, and uh, uh, hello to all those who are listening. Uh, I have to say, nothing but a great sinner saved by a great saviour, really. Well, of course, and we trust that that's all our testimonies, isn't it? And in a moment, I'll ask you to share that. People might have to forgive us because there is a little bit of cultural banter that happens between the good Archbishop and myself, him being on the western side of the Tasman Sea, and me, of course, uh, originally coming from the eastern side of the Tasman Sea. And for those who know their uh, southern hemisphere geography, will understand what I'm talking about. But um, uh, Archbishop, you mentioned um, saved by a great saviour. Tell us a little bit of how you came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Well, thank you. I was, of course, quoting John Newton there and his last words, and I think uh, they're great words for us all. Um, I came to a saving faith in Jesus when I was 15 years old. I had been going to church but uh, it was a, as it was for so many in those days, a rather nominal or conventional church going without any real personal element to it. And then uh, to our city came uh, Mr. Billy Graham. Uh, this was 1959. Mr. Graham's impact in Sydney and also throughout Australia and New Zealand too was phenomenal. Uh, and uh, so thousands upon thousands of people gathered to hear him. The final crusade meeting in Sydney was 153,000 people in a city of two million. I went on the first Sunday. uh, I heard him talk about, preach from the Bible. The thing that impressed me was he had his Bible open and he kept saying, the Bible says, the Bible says. That's what impressed me. And he told us the story of Noah and the ark. Uh, told us about judgment to come, told us about the Saviour, and invited us to put our trust and confidence in the one Saviour. And that, for me, was the crucial turning point of my entire life uh, when I uh, said, yes, this is, this is what I need. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Saviour. And the Lord was pleased to smile upon me that day and to accept me even though I am a great sinner. And I praise God, April the 20th, four o'clock in the afternoon, 1959. It's wonderful to hear you share that testimony. Thank you for sharing it with us. And of course, we're so thankful to God for the gift of Dr. Billy Graham. Yes. uh, Impacting people like you, uh, thousands, hundreds of many hundreds of thousands around the world. The work of the uh, 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 the Graham Association that continues to this day. One of the things I recall about Dr. Billy Graham was uh, a testimony that he shared, where he said he his early preaching wasn't having the impact that he hoped, and he went to a um, a, a a wise Christian saint and said, you know, what is it in my preaching? that uh, needs to be rectified. And the person said, there's not enough cross 
There's not uh, enough of the cross of Jesus yes. uh, in your preaching. Yes. And from then on, he resolved, of course, to uh, uh, speak of the cross and the, the message of the scripture. You, of course, reference the Bible, and we're going to be talking about the Bible as we share together in this program. But uh, one of the things that, of course, concerns me, and I know that it concerns you, is that uh, there's there sometimes has not been significant and well sufficient portions of the Bible in the preaching in the Anglican Church. We'll come back to that in a moment. But your premise has always been to teach the Scriptures, to preach from the Scriptures. Christ reveals Himself as the Scriptures are taught. Is that an accurate assumption? Uh, yes, it is, and it is crucial to what we do in church. Uh, a little while ago, I, I listened. I my something trouble with my eyes, so I listened to about forty sermons, and it was interesting, uh, as you can do these days. Uh, one or two people preached themselves. They were they were pretending to preach the Bible, but they preached themselves. Uh, most of the people I listened to, in fact, actually did preach the scriptures, but also one or two preached in a sense from the scriptures. They were acknowledging the Bible, but they didn't actually preach the Bible, if you see the difference. Yes. Uh, they, they used the Bible as their springboard. They didn't preach themselves, but they used the Bible as the springboard. I think what John Stott and others have done for us in this generation has been to say to us, no, that's not good enough. Uh, you need actually to expound the scriptures, as was done in the early church and, and of course, down through church history. And uh, that has been a very important, very significant step in the last uh, four or five decades. Uh, Archbishop Peter Jensen is my guest on this episode of Living Through the Word. Archbishop, if if, if my notes are correct, you were ordained uh, in the Anglican Church in, at the end of the 60s, I think 1969, that's a, that's or correct. around that time. Uh, th of course, at that time, I was just um, a very, very young lad, uh, 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 beginning a journey uh, into Anglicanism through baptism. My producer, Mark Steele, uh, wasn't even a young lad at that stage. You know, Mark Steele uh, was deeply impacted by a, a presentation you made at Westminster here in the United States in 2015 that convinced him to become an Anglican. So we might say, Archbishop, in many ways, you are responsible for this podcast. I'm, I'm dazzled and surprised. Uh, <laughs> since you have said that, I ought to say, by the way, uh, to the listeners, that I'm sitting here this morning deliberately clothed in a uh, pullover, if that's what you call them. Uh, made we would we, we would call it a sweater here. A sweater uh, made uh, with the assistance of New Zealand possums laid down their lives. Yes, I actually know that sweater because you've you've shown it to me. Yes, the, oh yes, the possums. It's a wonderful sweater and. It's a wonderful sweater. And we thank New Zealand for it. And we have so much to give thanks to God for um, New Zealand. Uh, Archbishop Peter Jensen, uh, uh, in, in 1969, when you were ordained, um, what were the challenges you faced in Christian ministry then, and what are they now? Yes, I think the 1960s are the crucial decade for spiritually in the 20th century. Uh, that was the decade in which uh, Time magazine published Is God Dead on its front cover, and rightly so. Uh, the uh, decade has been described, for example, one author has written a book called The Death of God in Britain, 
uh, saying it was that decade. So uh, whereas the 1950s in our part of the world, and I think elsewhere too, the churches were full, uh, by the end of the 60s, many, many nominal Christians had ceased to go to church. And so we were seeing then a considerable change in the ethos in the 60s. Now, this is famous, of course. It's linked to such things as the Vietnam War, the contraceptive pill, all sorts of things. It was crucial at that point, from a missional point of view, that the churches saw this situation and changed in order to reach out and to continue to reach out into our population. Now, I don't think we made enough changes. I think uh, we didn't see all that we should have seen. But at least in our part of the world, and I know in many other parts too, um, there were significant changes in the way we did church. Central to that was this preaching, teaching business that was going to be essential for the next uh, decades so that Christians were well instructed in living in a world which had turned its back on Christ. So 1969, uh, we were seeing the effects of the revolution against God and we were preparing ourselves to walk into a new sort of world. And Archbishop, are they similar challenges that you're seeing in Sydney today and around the world, the challenges of the 60s? Are they still the challenges for us today? I would say fundamentally the challenges today, I'll put it another way, the challenges today arise fundamentally from those challenges of the 60s. Mm. But, of course, mm. time has moved on and many other different things. Uh, so... If you were living in Sydney today, and I suspect in many of the uh, great cities, uh, we have about 200 different ethnic groups in Sydney. We certainly didn't have anything like that in the 1960s. Uh, we have many Filipinos here, many Indians here, many Asians here. Uh, the result is that our mission strategy has to be different. Uh, and as well as that, many of our new and welcome guests uh, well, not guests, they're settlers, new and welcome citizens, uh, are far more open to talking about religion and the gospel than were the Anglo-Saxons from an earlier period in Australian history. Um, Archbishop Peter Jensen, uh, 2001, uh, you were uh, installed as uh, the Archbishop of Sydney, um, that sounds um, an incredible thing. What 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 is a bishop? What is an archbishop? What is uh, what is a man in that position called to do? Well, I've often asked myself that question, and now that I'm retired, I'm sure I know the answer. <laughs> um, I was elected to that position. I had been the principal of Moore College, and in many ways being principal of a seminary is as important or even more important than being the archbishop, in my opinion, because the seminary is that which uh, gives the health or the sickness of a denomination, or so it seems to me. Uh, the archbishop, on being consecrated, according to the Book of Common Prayer, is given one thing. Now, these days, when bishops are consecrated, they receive all sorts of things, uh, uh, rings and crosses and so forth and so on. But in the Book of Common Prayer, as I read it, one thing, that's the Bible. 
And it's a way of saying that your task as a bishop is exactly the same as your task as a priest, namely to preach the word of God with the different set of opportunities that being the bishop has. It's not as though in that sense you're entering a different role. You have the same role. In fact, if you look at the two services, you'll see that the, what the priest does and what the bishop does certainly overlap. Uh, and you are not being asked to change from that point of view, though you do have much wider opportunities in some ways. Now, that said, I think the bishop has particular, there's many, many things that a bishop is called upon to do, and I can assure you that my days were filled with all sorts of activities, uh, many of them bureaucratic and so forth and so on. But the thing that I always knew had to be done was that uh, clergy, ministers of the gospel had to be recruited. They had to be trained. They had to be chosen, ordained, sent out, and then uh, uh, we had to care for them and exhibit discipline if needed. So in many ways, if you get to the real gist of the issue for the bishop, it is to make sure that the churches, which is after all where things really happen in the local churches, that our churches are well served by those in ministry. And that, I think, I, I had a particular responsibility for. Archbishop, let me just jump back to something you said when you introduced this um, topic about the, uh, the role of bishops in response to my question. You talked about the place of the Bible. Now, in the authoritative prayer book of the Anglican Church, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, there is also a laying on of hands. Obviously, that's important. But would you say that true apostolic succession is, in fact, the reception of the Bible, the, the word that is given to us by Christ himself to go and preach to the nations, particularly uh, in the area of responsibility the bishop, the priest has. Could you respond to that? Yes, I'll tell you how I see it, Julian, and that is to say the laying on of hands and the laying on of hands by uh, your, your, the other bishops uh, is important to me. It signifies a fellowship uh, amongst bishops, but it also signifies that you are in a tradition, that you are in a line of bishops where the gospel has been maintained and that uh, you don't, uh, as a Christian and as a Christian teacher and theologian, you don't simply ignore the past and the way in which people have witnessed to Christ down through the ages. Uh, you are the heir of so much. And that certainly is signified by the laying on of hands of these bishops. But fundamentally, of course, the apostolic succession is a reference to the idea that the church is built upon the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and that the apostolic succession is a succession of those who follow the scriptures, teach the scriptures, live the scriptures, and the Bible alone. When you became Archbishop in 2001, uh, you had some uh, priorities, particularly with regards to the life of the church and the mission that the church has she has received from Christ. What were some of those priorities? 
And at the conclusion of your uh, ministry as Archbishop of Sydney, how had you gone in uh, fulfilling and reaching some of those goals? Julian, what I did was I thought, uh, and looking again at the consecration of bishops, uh, which also includes uh, caring for the poor and needy and so forth. So one of the things I did was to say to myself, who are the most poor and needy in our community? And I thought, well, they are prisoners in our jails. So for me, I gave myself the task of visiting the prisons, talking to prisoners, talking to prison guards, prison chaplains, and then talking to our political leaders about what was going on in our prisons. That seemed to me to be, now it didn't mean that was the only thing I did, but I thought that was an important element of what I was doing there in the name of Christ. Uh, on that larger front, however, very much aware of the of the way in which the gospel was being eclipsed or is being eclipsed in Western society, uh, with the help of others, I, this is not just me, uh, but with the help of others in the Diocese of Sydney, uh, we set a vision, uh, the vision to, uh, to seek to reach out to 10% of the population in the 10 years that uh, lay before us and to see if we could get 10% of the population coming to church and believing in Christ. The actual figures we had then were about 2%. Uh, we said 10% because it was impossible. Uh, that to get that figure was just outrageous. Only God could do that. But it meant that instead of just saying, yes, we'll grow gently, it was a way of challenging our churches to be revolutionary in their thinking to say, no, it's not just a matter, for example, of attracting people. We must actually go out to people uh, in a sort of old-fashioned way, actually, door-to-door -door and things like that. And so that's what I kept trying to do, kept trying to do, kept trying to do during that 10 years. We did not reach 10%, but we did grow. One of the uh, uh, things that I remember impacting me as an Anglican minister back in my days in New Zealand, um, uh, not long before I came to the United States, uh, were what is known to Australians as the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Boyer Lectures. Uh, yeah. And I think, if I have the year right, I think 2005, you were invited to uh, give the Boyer Lectures and you chose the topic, The Future of Jesus. Um, can you tell those listening to the podcast what the Boyer Lectures were and why a topic, the future of Jesus, uh, was perhaps an unusual topic for those lectures? Uh, yes, Julian. Well, of course, uh, you know me, and therefore the very first topic that came into my mind was uh, rhetoric. I thought I'd give five lectures on rhetoric, uh, how to tell a joke properly and things like that. But uh, I'm glad to say that thought did not last more than about two minutes, and I thought, hold on, uh, I'm a bishop. I'm I'm a clergyman. I'm a minister of the gospel and a minister of the new covenant. And um, what is my business? And my business is to proclaim Christ. Here was an opportunity, uh, pretty well unparalleled, uh, to to be part of this. So the series has been going for thirty or forty years, uh, with the exception of my invitation. They're given by very distinguished people, and uh, normally there's only one other that had been given to a theologian, if I remember correctly, here was a moment. And so instantly I thought, well, I have to talk about Jesus. Uh, so I chose that and I chose the topic, the future of Jesus, in order to confront our society with the question of what we were going to do with Jesus 
in Australia. Uh, we all said we, we admire him, but what are we going to actually do with him in today's world? Now, I listened uh, to those lectures. Um, your question, yeah, yes. Yeah, Peter, they were impactful. Um, if I recall correctly, you you said in those lectures something to this effect that you wanted to invite the people of Australia to think again about Jesus. Um, yes. Why did you say that? And And is Jesus still good news in 2019? I said it because... Although the church, the different churches and denominations, uh, do not retain much of the confidence of the Australian people, uh, and I suspect that's a phenomenon worldwide, uh, and it has gotten worse since then, uh, Jesus does. Uh, people will criticise Christians and the church and even Christianity till the cows come home but they very rarely criticise Jesus. And so I thought that was interesting. Secondly, yet their knowledge of Jesus is very shallow indeed. And I thought it was worth, therefore, using this opportunity to explain who Jesus really is. Uh, it had some impact. We know of several people who became Christians as a result of uh, the broadcasts and the book that followed. Uh, and I think it was helpful to some people to challenge them to take Jesus seriously and not just as a sort of a, a fictional figure, a fi person they'd made up for themselves or uh, someone they knew nothing about. We'll reference in the uh, show notes uh, the book that came out of um, those lectures. It's called The Future of Jesus, The Boyer Lectures 2005. Uh, I encourage you to get hold of that uh, and to read it. It was very impactful to me as a minister in the church. Thank you for being so courageous, uh, Archbishop Peter, and uh, in, in presenting that in a very secular environment. Let me just shift the conversation a little bit. I still want to focus on your ministry as Archbishop in Sydney. Uh, in the Diocese of Sydney, uh, women are ordained to the diaconate. In fact, a colleague of mine said to me, Women are ordained in the, to the diaconate in Sydney, uh, not as priests, but it is in Sydney where you see more women in leadership than any other part of the Anglican communion. That might underscore that neither men nor women need to be ordained to exercise a ministry in the local church. However, ordination is obviously important in our context. Uh, Kramner left us with holy orders, uh, deacons, presbyters, bishops. Um, tell us, if you would, the difference between lay and ordained ministry and what synergy exists between the two, if any. Yes, thank you. And the observation, by the way, is, I think, accurate. Uh, we have always in this diocese had a large number of women, uh, both lay women, but also women deaconesses, for example, and other workers. And ironically, it was the very places that never had any women in any ministry at all who finished up with women priests uh, but then and then criticised us for our attitude. <laughs> but we have always been very supportive of women in ministry and men in ministry. Uh, I think it arises in part from the recognition that ministry is one, that it's not something that is actually merely reserved for the ordained. 
Uh, so when I was growing up, if I may give autobiographical answers as well, when I was growing up, from the moment I came to know the Lord, uh, I was trained to be a Sunday school teacher. Mm. We had six months training, and then I was a Sunday school teacher. Then I was a fellowship leader. Uh, as soon as I left school, I went to what we call beach mission, uh, where 30 or 40 people would go to the beach uh, beaches of uh, New South Wales uh, uh, during the holiday season and minister there. Uh, I was involved in a camping movement where the Scripture Union ran uh, and so forth and so on. And when we went to university, of course, we were involved in uh, the uh, what was called the Evangelical Union at the university. In other words, as a lay person, it was never suggested that I wasn't in ministry. My business was I was I was I was involved, and not just within my local church, but across the churches as well. Um, now that's extraordinarily important. So when I became a uh, principal of Moore College. Uh, and I would always interview the the uh, applicants. Uh, people couldn't just apply to come; uh, they would they would come and see me, and they may or may not leave with the uh, application form. But I would always check to see not if they were capable of ministry, but whether they were in ministry. I don't. There's no point ordaining people; that doesn't turn you into a minister. Uh, it. You need to recognise ministry and then ordination is the setting apart of some people, uh, enabling them very often but not always uh, to live in a, with a stipend, uh, but setting aside those people and giving them, if you like, an office uh, and therefore set responsibilities to do. There is an importance to that. I would be the first to say that, of course, very important indeed. But it's not in principle different from the ministry of God's word to which we're all called. And I think that's got to be borne in mind. And we're looking for people who are so committed to Christ that they will be men and women, because it's the same thing, men and women of the word and prayer all their lives. Living Through the Word is a ministry of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. We're grateful to you, the listeners, to this podcast. Uh, we welcome you to subscribe to the podcast on your smartphone so that you never miss an episode. Uh, you can also reach us at questions at adlw.org. It's a new feature we've set up to allow you to ask questions that you might have about Anglican doctrine, about faith in Christ, whatever it may be, and we'll do our best to respond to them. My guest is Archbishop Peter Jensen. Archbishop, right now around the Anglican world, the Anglican communion appears to be in crisis. Would it be fair to say the crisis results from a lack of confidence in the Bible? And if so, how did we get there? Yes and no. That is to say, well, I'll say yes, no, and then yes again. Uh, let me illustrate. You were asking me about being Archbishop of Sydney, and I was telling you about the mission. But one of the things that I didn't know I would be involved in uh, was the crisis uh, in our denomination over sexual abuse in the churches. The sexual revolution of the 1960s has not just been uh, had its effect on non-Christians, 
it's also had its effect, alas, on those in the churches, those professing to be Christians. And I'm sorry to say that um, I interviewed uh, perhaps 30 victims, survivors. Uh, they taught me so much. Uh, but one of the things they taught me was that uh, and I should have known this because my doctrine of original sin tells me this. We can't trust each other. Mm. When you count the offertory in church, there always ought to be two people counting the offertory uh, because we are sinners. Now, let me come back to your question. Is it a crisis about the authority of the Bible? If you want to look historically and uh, chart the way in which uh, liberalism has had such an impact on the theological colleges of our denomination, and then that impact on the colleges is impacted on the clergy so that they don't trust their Bibles enough to preach the Bible, and then that impacts then on people in the pew, yes, there has been a major crisis over many years about the authority of the Bible. However, even amongst those who profess to trust in Christ and profess to have the Bible as their authority, that does not turn you into a sinless, perfect human being. Because I have seen, I guess in my own life, but I have seen in the lives of others, people who have been well-trained, people who have known the Lord, people who have said that they believe the Bible and the Bible alone, and I've seen catastrophic fall. Yes. But then that's another way of saying they didn't really trust the Bible. Instead, they followed their own path. And uh, what they did was just as much a failure as liberalism. It was another form of, if you like, another form of uh, not treating the Bible as the word of God. And so I say, yes, a great deal of what we see and the, and the problems that we see are about whether we take the Bible as the word of God and whether we trust the scriptures and whether we walk with the Lord following his word. And that's a word for me as well as for everyone else. In 2008, um, Archbishop Peter, uh, a journey, a new journey began in Anglicanism called GAFCON. Yeah. Uh, you have been significantly um, influential uh, in the GAFCON movement. Uh, I've had the privilege of walking alongside you for some of those years, the more latter years. Um, what happened in 2008 and why was that so significant? In the lead-up to 2008, of course, uh, we had seen, particularly in the North American church, a, to my mind, flagrant uh, disobedience to the word of God and also what can only be regarded as something like contempt for the rest of the Anglican communion. Uh, this created uh, quite a number of meetings and, and attempts to heal and to restore without success. In 2008, there was to be another Lambeth conference. In December 2007, Archbishop Akiola of Nigeria, one of the great leaders in my opinion, called a group of us together in, uh, in Kenya and we discussed what should happen, whether we could go to the Lambeth conference 
bearing in mind that by having fellowship in that way, whether you like it or not, you are endorsing the positions of others, which in this case uh, was an affront to the gospel, in my opinion. And so Archbishop Akinola and this group agreed to have their own conference, our own conference in Jerusalem for bishops, particularly those who couldn't go to Lambeth on principal grounds. And Archbishop Akinola looked around the room and said, Peter, you run it. <laughs> well, that was very kind of him. I had a big job already. Thank you very much. Uh, but uh, I took the job on with the help of a remarkable Englishman called Chris Sugden. And so Jerusalem 2008, under God's hand, in God's providence, astonishingly within a few months, was delivered. And to my mind was one of the great moments, again, of my life. Uh, not because I was in charge of running it, but because of the fellowship and the commitment there. The heroism of our American friends, Canadian and uh, US friends, in saying that they were prepared to leave their denomination rather than have fellowship with those who were not living in accordance with the word of God, even though it cost them dearly. And that uh, North American courage uh, was hugely significant, I think, for the rest of us. As one Nigerian said to me a little while later, now we know we're not alone. We're not the only ones who make us stand Christ and the gospel. It was out of that uh, 2008 conference that GAFCON called forth what we now know as the Anglican Church in North America, which is Correct. in some yeah. respects come of age. Um, yeah. Our own diocese is part of that. Um, yes. We've seen an incredible work of God in the uh, proclamation of the gospel, the planting of new churches. Uh, were, th were there any critics? Um, and are there any critics to this GAFCON movement today? <laughs> yes, sorry. Um, uh, people have become accustomed, particularly in England, I think, to call it toxic GAFCON. Okay. GAFCON was, <laughs> it was, a, it was a conference, but then it began a movement, and that movement is now eleven years old. Uh, and uh, yes, there are certainly very strong critics. Um, some uh, are surface critics, just being nasty, uh, but there are some profound criticisms of GAFCON. Some deep concerns about GAFCON. And uh, there are some people who are critical of GAFCON who I admire very much. And they're not being critical because of some, you know, they've been affronted or something like this, but critical because of their fears that something like GAFCON is going to, um, is going to destroy the Anglican communion uh, and to divide what should be united. Well, uh, I think anyone who says that needs to be taken seriously and listened to. Uh, my instant response is to say, well, unfortunately, that happened when the people in the United States of America took the action they did back in 2003. That was the crucial moment. And if you're looking for a cause of division, that's it. What GAFCON does is it gathers up the fragments. It keeps, as Anglican, people who have to leave their denominational Anglicanism want still to be Anglican. And GAFCON, like the Good Samaritan, comes, binds up their wounds, puts them on the donkey and takes them to the inn. Uh, GAFCON exists as a movement for unity. And uh, disunity is the last thing we do. 
Yeah, and uh, thank God for the ministry of GAFCON. We, 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 we're seeing around the world now uh, provinces joining, dioceses joining, congregations joining. Uh, we've got bishops being trained. We've got theological education as a priority. Because I think you would agree, Archbishop Jensen, one of the greatest challenges for us is to regain our seminaries. If we lose the seminaries, we lose the next generation. Uh, and you taught me that, and and I believe that to be a significant part of what GAFCON is doing, retaking, replanting uh, uh, seminaries where the Bible is taught faithfully, where Christian men and women are, are trained for ministry uh, in the global context. We've got a new province in New Zealand, uh, that great country to your east um, oh, yes. that uh, has begun, and yes. uh, we're about to ordain uh, Jay Bean as the yeah. um, as the bishop uh, for that that work. Um, uh, if you just um, cast your mind back to the 2008 GAFCON, which uh, 2018, which went back to Jerusalem, yeah. um, yes, uh, your successor as Archbishop of Sydney. Uh, 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 Dr. Glenn Davis was seen standing in line with other volunteers, quietly handing out conference bags and helping attendees to sign into that conference. Um, was this a one-time occurrence, or is this the kind of servant leadership that uh, characterizes the ministry of your successor? I, I wouldn't expect him to do anything else. That's that's Glenn. That's that's what he would do. Yes. Uh, if you go into ministry, if you see ministry as a service, I don't know how you can not serve, if you follow me. But anyhow, no, that's Glenn, and uh, I'm not at all surprised. Who who do you think are the um, up-and-coming voices of Orthodox Anglicanism around the globe? Uh, we've got so many brothers and sisters in Africa, Southeast Asia. Uh, in other words, what young men and uh, and, and, and women should we uh, should we be looking for uh, to be guests on this podcast? Well, of course, uh, no one can uh, get around uh, the importance of Ben Kwashi, and I know you've had him already. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Alfred Olwa of um, Uganda is a very significant person with uh, considerable experience across the globe, and uh, I, I think that he is a person of the future. Um, You've caught me. I, I, I certainly have JB in, as a matter of fact. I think Jay, despite the fact he's a New Zealander, but his father and mother were English. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> Jay is, uh, I, I think you will need to listen to Jay carefully, I have to say. And, and we, uh, we could actually call the listeners to this podcast to be in prayer for Bishop-elect Jay Bean. Uh, yes, his task yes. is not a simple one. Uh, uh, he's got six, 16 or so uh, churches that are stepping outside of the uh, current Anglican church in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Polynesia to join the uh, new GAFCON diocese. Uh, he would be a worthy and is a worthy uh, recipient of uh, the prayers of those who are listening uh, to uh, this podcast. Um, Archbishop, um, you're a person that uh, has written books. You read books. Um, I've had the privilege of traveling significantly internationally with you. I see you reading. Um, two books that you might encourage people to read? Uh, well, uh, Julian, um, as you know, uh, the books that I would suggest are Wuthering Heights and Bleak House. <laughs> they had such an impact on me when I was a teenager. 
but I presume you mean Christian books particularly. <laughs> it is funny when, I, uh, when I'm speaking to uh, young people in, uh, in first year particularly of uh, their seminary education, uh, how reading has become problematic um, in many circles and particularly the reading of poetry. Uh, and I actually think <laughs> that mm. we sing a lot of mm. poetry. I'm not sure we read a lot of poetry. Mm. And I, uh, I just, you know, strange sort of way, think that that's a good thing to do. And great novels as well, so that there are great American, for example, North American novels, which um, which uh, people know about um, that, uh, that are very significant. However, if you're asking me, uh, I will go back into my past. There are present ones, of course, but if you go back into the past, I it, I know everyone everyone talks about him, but I think C.S. Lewis had a tremendous impact on me as a young man, and I think that uh, if you have never read Mere Christianity, for example, or one or two of the other of his classics, then this is something certainly worth reading. The other book that had a huge impact on me when I first read it uh, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. Mm, mm. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Mm. Uh, they're the words that I've inscribed in the front of my edition, uh, which is dated 1965, I noticed when I bought it. Um, and he says, only those who believe can obey and only those who obey can believe. Uh, another quote which I've written in red in the front of my uh, copy uh, those two books, there are so many other books one could mention, but if you're looking for something better than the mere froth that we are sometimes served in popular Christian publishing, uh, these are ones that have stood the test. And uh, I think uh, if you have never read them, I think it would be worth reading. Um, behind any great man is a particularly courageous woman. Uh, many people uh, in North America have not had the privilege of getting to know your wife, Christine, uh, who is an um, incredible uh, follower of Christ, leader in her own right, servant, um, uh, uh, faithful uh, sister in the church. Uh, tell us what you and Christine uh, are doing in so-called retirement. Well, uh, Julian, I, I beg to tell you that uh, behind every great and successful man, there is a very surprised mother-in-law. Uh, it's the, <laughs> the true statement. Uh, however, yes, Christine and I have known each other since we were five years old, grew up in the same Sunday school, went to the same church, etc. went to all the same camps, etc., etc. She also studied uh, theology at Moore College. Uh, we have five children and 25 grandchildren, so that keeps us busy. Uh, however, our days are... Yeah, the, the difference between us now and us six years ago is that we're not receiving a stipend. Other than that, uh, life goes on, ministry goes on, and whether it's uh, we, we get a number of invitations to speak at things. We This week we are speaking on Christian marriage faithfulness, for example, to a group of women, uh, and we do have these joint speeches. At the very moment that we speak, she's down in the what's called the Mother's Union shop, taking care of things in the Mother's Union shop where she supervises the, uh, the bookstall, for example, and make sure they have the right books. Uh, but she's got an extensive speaking ministry. Uh, she also mentors people one-to-one. -one. Uh, she's regarded, and I think this is perfectly true, as a very wise person. Um, and I am extraordinarily blessed to have her and intensely proud uh, of this woman that God has kindly uh, united me with. Uh, and I think that's just so significant for ministry. 
Archbishop Peter Jensen, you are a hero to many of us. Uh, I count it an incredible privilege to have served Christ and continue to serve him uh, alongside of you in so many ways. You've impacted my own ministry as a bishop uh, in significant ways. Um, we won't mention cricket, rugby, uh, any of those things, uh, <laughs> because I'm about to pray and move into holy things. Yes. But thank yes. you. Uh, thank you for everything you have done. Thank you for everything you are doing. What a gift uh, you are to so many of us, sir. Oh, Julian, it's very, very kind of you. And I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. Let's have a word of prayer before we conclude. Direct us in all our doings, O Lord, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works begun, contended, uh, continued and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name and finally, by your mercy, attain everlasting life through Jesus Christ alone. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is Living Through the Word, and I'm Julian Dobbs. 